the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This podcast brought to you by the Weekly Standard Cruise. Cruising the Mediterranean October 9th through the 20th with all of your Weekly Standard favorites, including Stephen Hayes, Bill Crystal, and Fred Barnes. For more information, visit TWSCruise.com. That's the Weekly Standard, TWSCruise.com. Here to help us figure out what's really going on with Obamacare and regulation is uh, James Capretta, Senior Fellow at the Ethics for Public Policies, Ethics Public Policy Center. Jim, welcome. So glad to have you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. A lot of people are starting to make a connection between the current status of Obamacare and the willingness of President Obama to simply abandon whole chunks of it and other major legislation like, oh, immigration reform. Are they on the right path? Well, I think there's certainly a reason to be suspicious. Uh, it's obvious that the administration is abandoning whatever they have to to kind of keep the perception going that implementation is on track and it's going to happen no matter what. And uh, whatever's inconvenient along the way, they're just throwing overboard, whether it's in the law or not. So, yeah, I think there's reason to be very suspicious that anything that was passed in immigration would be enforced as written because they certainly haven't done that with the health care law. How much trouble is Obamacare in? Is it in the kind of trouble that you can fix with a little more time and a lot more money, or is it suffering an existential crisis? I think it's an existential crisis. I think the exchange rollout, that is, the foundations of law are these exchanges they're building in every state around the country. I think that process is on the verge of administrative collapse. They basically announced two things that really indicate that the thing is not going to work in 2014. First was the delay in the employer mandate. So now you have a system where everybody's supposed to either get insurance through their employer or uh, get it through the exchanges. One leg of that has now been totally brought into question because they're saying employers don't have to comply with it, and you're not supposed to go into the exchanges unless you can't get employer coverage. So the whole that whole architecture has now been kicked out from under the law. The second is the they announced on Friday that they're not going to do income verification on any of the applicants because they can't get in the administrative processes in place in time. Now, this is something they've been building for, for three years, and they've maintained all the way up until last Friday that this thing was going to be ready on time and be operational, and all the states would use it to determine who was eligible for subsidies based on their income and who wouldn't be. And they announced on Friday... Nope, we decided no, never mind. They did it in a, in a rule that they never, they didn't do any press release, they didn't do any kind of announcement about it. They just said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're just going to rely on applicant um, information. So an applicant can come in and say, here's what I think my income is going to be. They'll pay them a subsidy in 2014, no questions asked. Uh, I think that's an indication, well, obviously, anyone who's been you know, involved in administration of governmental programs knows that that will lead to many billions and billions of dollars in waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, it will increase very dramatically the cost of taxpayers, and the money will never be recouped because it's almost impossible to recoup this money for people that are not filing income taxes. So they've announced that on Friday. On top of the employer mandate, it's quite clear to me that they just don't have a functional process in place to make this law work at the exchange level. They won't admit that. Uh, but that's the reality. I want to go back to the honor system that you just presented because I'm we're, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts, and we have had the honor system for our electronic benefits transfer cards, EBT cards, for years. Part of the honor system was you would come in and identify yourself to get an EBT card. You'd have to say 
for example, what your rent, what you're spending on housing. And so people are, are allowed currently to self-declare. They say, I'm sleeping on my dad's sofa, and he charges me $1,200 a month in rent. And they never had to bring in any paperwork. But that $1,200 figure was used to calculate what kind of EBT benefits you qualified for. And you'll be shocked, Jim, to learn that some people weren't paying $1,200 to sleep on that sofa. They weren't paying anything. And the other thing we do here is when you come in to identify yourself, you're asked for a Social Security number. If you don't have a Social Security number, you're given an EBT card anyway in six months to come back and give us your Social Security number. Well, you'll be shocked to learn, Jim, that people show up with no Social Security number. They never come back, and they stay on EBT for years after that. Now, that's a small state and a relatively small program. You're talking about the same system for a healthcare system that can spend tens of thousands of dollars on a single patient? Yeah, it's it's incredible that they would assume that people would think this was a good idea. Uh, what they're trying to do is skate past the fact that they know that this is no way to run a government program because none of the other major government programs are run this way. There is a electronic income verification system for just about every other benefit system that's being paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of them still don't work very well, by the way. There's an earned income tax credit where 20 to 25 percent of the benefits paid are still erroneous because of misfilings of information by the taxpayers. So there, there's all kinds of loopholes here for abuse. But they know that this is not a way to run a benefit program, but, but they don't have any choice because of the collapse of the administrative process in, in play here. They, had, they were supposed to be building something called the data hub, where they would check in real time everybody's income. Uh, they've been telling everybody for three, they spent $400 million building this through contracts and you know, tens, you know, thousands of federal personnel working on it, at least hundreds of federal personnel working on it. And um, it's basically an admission. This rule on Friday was an admission that it will not be operational for 2014, which is stunning because they've told everybody that it would be for the last three years. What happens to the individual who has no insurance and who was planning on buying his insurance through his employer once the mandate for his employer took effect and he was going to kick in, you know, through his policy, you know, process that way? What what happens to him now? Nothing. I mean, they still are uh, basically out of luck, right? So the employer may not ha- may not have to offer to them now, and they have to because of the individual mandate have to go into the exchanges and enroll in one of the uh, plan offerings being made by uh, the Obamacare exchanges. But by the way, in many of the states, there aren't necessarily uh, any plans being offered. Like in Mississippi, um, in I guess about a third or 40% of the state, there will be no plans offered, at least at the moment. In the state of New Hampshire, only one plan will be offered, so it's a de facto single-payer plan. Uh, In some states, maybe two plans will be offered. So, you know, you're you're starting to see that, yeah, great, we got this individual mandate, and you've got to get coverage through this exchange system. Well, the choices there might be pretty lousy. Uh, but what happens if I don't buy insurance? For example, let's say that I'm in New Hampshire, and the one plan that's available is unaffordable for me for whatever reason. I don't have a, don't have a job or have a crummy job or whatever. What happens then? Well, under the law, you either pay that premium, unaffordable as it might be, or you pay a uh, penalty, a tax penalty to the federal government in the form of uh, a new tax that will be levied on uninsured people beginning beginning in calendar 2014, but payable really in, with your tax filing in 2015. And how much is that penalty? 
it's actually quite low at the beginning, which might induce a lot of people to pay it rather than sign up for the lousy coverage in the exchange. Ninety-five bucks or one percent of your. So what idiot is going to go out and buy? You're 24 years old. You're healthy. You don't want a full coverage insurance plan. If you wanted anything, you'd want a catastrophic care, you know, emergency plan. And so they're saying, well, you either have to pay a seven thousand dollars a year or ninety-five dollars. Which one are you going to pay? You're going to pay the ninety-five bucks. Totally agree with you, Michael. I think that's where many, many millions of younger people, and not, not, not so young people, even there's a lot of people 40, 40 years old are in catastrophic plans and are relatively healthy. They pay a premium today, but they're going to have to pay a lot more under this law, and they may decide that it's better just to pay the penalty for a time until they actually need insurance. I, you, you have the opportunity to debate this issue with people who are very serious-minded about it and supporters of Obamacare. I, I'm, I will be honest with you, Jim, I'm having a hard time finding supports of Obamacare anymore. But what do the supporters say? I mean, they they have to see that the math isn't working. They have to see that the claim that this isn't going to add a single nickel to the deficit is laughable, that this is going to drive down costs, laughable. So when someone like you who has the facts confronts them, what? how do they defend their decision to continue to push for this failing plan? Well, they generally try to seize the moral high ground. They try to say, look, this thing is not perfect, but it's you know its intent and its aim and its goal and they still believe it will work eventually is to cover you know millions and millions of people with health insurance so they kind of kind of pivot from you know operational problems and you know economic problems and the fact that it's going to run up huge deficits and you know all the reasons that I bring up and you bring up they pivot from that and say yeah but at least it's going to cover tens of millions of people with insurance and of course my response to that is is we didn't need Obamacare to cover and provide more stable insurance coverage for the American public. Uh, we could do that with a market-driven reform plan that emphasizes catastrophic insurance, frankly, as you just indicated. Um, there's a way, see, there are ways I, to I, that I've written, a lot to... of, I've written a lot about that, and I think that the one thing is opponents of the law are going to have to embrace mm-hmm. a credible replacement program That'll make it even easier to get rid of Obamacare. Well, I hate to interrupt. But I just, I just don't believe that they think this is going to work. I mean, they have to know that when you give away free stuff and people use more of it, prices are going to go up. They have to know the basics of economics that people won't act in the, against their own economic self-interest. That young people aren't going to buy expensive insurance just to prove that they love Obama. They have to know that. So they do. They do, Michael, but I think, you know, one thing one thing to keep in mind is that, um, I'm not saying I'm not taking their point of view, is that I mm-hmm. think that they probably rightly perceive that if they can get an entitlement mentality in place, it's very hard to undo later. So, yeah, it may cost three times as much as they expected. It may, it may be poorly administered. It may feel a lot like a Medicaid program, you know, the health insurance program for, Medi- for low-income people today, which is not very well run but nonetheless has 60 million people in it. Um, You know, I think that they feel like, well, if we can just get it up and running and get people dependent on it, it can't be undone later. That's sort of their main objective. I'm afraid you're absolutely right. Uh, James Capretta, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast brought to you by the Weekly Standard Cruise. October 9th through 20th, cruise the Mediterranean with your weekly standard favorites. For all the details, visit TWSCruise.com. That's TWSCruise.com.